through the cafe, community fridge, produce market, and free meal distribution. Learn more about these many initiatives and volunteer opportunities on Instagram at UBC Sprouts. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Arts Report. Sorry about that interruption earlier. We're having a little bit of technical difficulties, but we are back. So today we have a bit of a brief episode. We have one interview with a lovely woman named Wendy Van Riesen today. She's a textile artist from Vancouver, BC, um, talking about her experience as a textile artist, as an eco-conscious artist, um, and about her newest collection called Yash Oat Chai, which you can catch at the Circle Craft Fair this week. Um, and once again, sorry about the technical difficulties right there. Um, and yeah, I wanted to start off the show by saying, hello, you are listening to CITR 101.9 FM. My name is Serena. I am your host for today. This is the Arts Report, hosted by the Arts Collective. Um, and... I wanted to kind of do a slightly, slightly more in-depth land acknowledgement than we typically do on this show today, just because I did have a very um, kind of insightful conversation about that recently. Um, I think it's really important to address your positionality um, during your land acknowledgement and try to make it something that is kind of personal to you and personal to your, um, yeah, your positionality within kind of the broad stretches of this um, issue in this colonial state that we do live in. So CITR is part of UBC and UBC campus in Vancouver is located on the traditional, historical, and ancestral unceded, specifically unceded territory of the Musqueam people. I moved here from Calgary, um, which is Treaty 7 territory, and I am, you know, a, a white Canadian citizen. So I just wanted to address that first and foremost before we go into this um, beautiful interview that we have. So I'm going to cue that up right now and yeah, stick around to hear what Wendy has to say. Hello, Wendy, how are you today? I'm great, thank you. That's so good to hear. Um, so we're here to talk about your business today and your career as a textile artist. Um, I've done my research on you a little bit, uh, but I'm excited to get to hear about it in your own words and on your own um, kind of time here. So you have a, would you define it as a company, Dahlia Drive? Yes. A company? Perfect. Yeah. Yes. Um, so Dahlia Drive, do you want to tell me a little bit about that or tell the viewers a little bit about that? Um, well, Dahlia Drive um, was the name of my childhood street. Mm. And um, when I went to textile school, um, I started dyeing with natural dyes. And it was a guy, Gordon, who lived down the street. He had a lot of dahlias. Mm. And they were, um, I was using them to dye for the class. Um, and he would leave little bags out for me. And then I realized that because of that, because of the, I don't know, serendipity that I was using them as a dye for, in the class. And because the uh, street of my childhood was, um, on memory, I decided to call it, uh, start the company up with Value Drive. That's beautiful. It's nice to have like kind of a personal connection to at least the beginning of your company and you can kind of draw from that experience like going forward and especially for like an artistic business. I feel like that's really crucial. I've heard a lot of people talk about that. 
Um, yeah, I think it's very true. I think having uh, there's a richness behind anything that's important mm. to you. And so um, even though I might not always think about Delia Drive or my childhood, when I mention it, it becomes it becomes something else. And when it becomes of a company um, and that company changes, but it's still it's all layered on top. So it, I think it's richer. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Um, I wanted to ask you about your ethical art practice. I know that that was something that you had focused on. Do you want to speak to that? Yes. Originally, um, I went back to school at 50. And so I had already um, had a well years of life, but and I had already gathered a lot of things. And I had a lot of memories having to do with value drive of my mother and my grandmother. And so when I started um, manipulating fibers and then decided to what what I would want to do um, to manipulate was slips because I had a lot of them and slips were familiar to me as a child and my mother and my grandmother wore them. So I and I had a plethora of them. So I started printing onto slips. And so initially it wasn't really about being um, echo conscious. It was about I mean, philosophically, maybe being raised by people. I was raised by my aunt and my grandma, and uh, they were from of the Depression era. So they were always a little bit more cautious, and I had been taught how to sew. And I was basically raised to use what you have, not to accumulate more. Mm -hmm. So it made sense to me at 50 that I would start, since I had accumulated some things, that maybe I would start to utilize what I had accumulated. One of those things was slips. And it, it just so happened that that kind of echoed a, a growing echo consciousness about not making more, but using oh. what you have. But it started off more of a, a philosophy from my, from my own upbringing um, and utilizing that information rather than um, being on, um, on, on point with the coming movement. Right. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I think that thought of like the very basis of being like eco-conscious as a creator is like the limitations to creating in a world that is so full of just objects right like not trying to um, reinforce that like culture of overconsumption makes a lot of sense but I think that that would be kind of what did you find it difficult to navigate it as an artist where you had this kind of desire to be creating did you find that there was limitations to what you could do ethically, did that ever hold you back or was it always a positive experience? I think it was a positive experience for me. I think that I just, I, again, I think uh, what you're saying is that the limitations are, are an artist's friend to some extent because then you decide that you're, whatever that is, the imagination can take you. I, there was a decision that it's only going to be within this this little box. And that's helpful because if your mind is really creative, you can get lost quite easily in all the possibilities. So for me, the decide to you the decision to use slips and then realizing that that did uh, make a commentary about the echo conscious movement, then I did grow. I did I did find the canvas of the slip to be a little bit limiting, uh, limiting. And so um, when I was looking out for what I was going to do next in this box I found a lot of curtain shears that were thrown away so then I used shears to build um, structures 
upon which to print. Wow, that's very interesting. So um, if I hadn't sort of limited myself to that, I wouldn't mm -hmm. have gone in that direction. But I, in all the thrift stores, I was looking around, what else is there around that I can print on with the way I like to print? It had to be synthetic right. for what I was doing. And there were a lot of shears and they, then that's where I went with it. So could you elaborate a little bit on your actual like physical artistic process? How, if you would like to share at least um, sure. some of that sure. production methods, everything behind your kind of more unique version of like textile artistry. So with the slip dresses, it was mostly um, dyeing the slips and then printing um, usually evocative images onto them. Slips were traditionally worn under uh, women's clothing to so that their clothing would slip off of it against their skin. Right. It was a second layer of skin. So now that people were wearing them more out as dresses, mm -hmm. then I thought, well, what what is what's underneath that? But our innards. And so my first ones were were Leonardo da Vinci's images of skeletons or guts or bones um, on and oh, it, almost all of them had a backbone. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 Leonardo da Vinci drawn and then I would so then I would make those into screens and I would either screen uh, directly onto the slip or I would screen onto paper with uh, dis uh, dispersed dyes and then I would heat press the image into the garment so there was those are two different ways and then I could layer on um, there was a lot of echoes because the the drawings of Leonardo looked quite lacy and then slips were lacy I had a lot of um, images of lace or of uh, trees that were kind of lacy. And so there was this um, layering of imagery in that wow. way. With this, with the um, shears, I was able to have them sewn you know, locally into different structures that I designed. And then I would paint onto paper only for those ones right. or screen print. And then I would wrap the painting around the garment. Oh. And I would heat press it in. So in a way, it was like origami. It unfolded. The paper un um, was pinned on, was unpinned. And then the garment unfolded into whatever design that it had been heat pressed into. So that too would have, I would paint the paper sometimes. And then I would screen print on top of that. So but the layering mostly happened on the paper. Wow, that's really. Do you find that a lot of artists that you know use similar techniques, or do you have kind of a unique technique in that? I think it's quite unique. I don't really know of anybody else that uses it. It's quite, um, it's a bit labor intensive, and 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 it, it was because they're all one of a kind, and um, it's difficult to um, make be able to make them in a way that can be sold wholesale so yeah. it's really just going to markets and finding your your people that like the work and then and then then I, I i went to we lived in masset for a year and i met reg davidson so that's where the yash o chai um line came from so those images aren't are images aren't mine right. the garment shapes were ones that i designed the technique to get his images on the garments is something that I developed, but all of the indigenous designs are Reg Davidson's. Right, do you wanna to speak to your partner in that collection? Yeah. yeah, he's a great guy. We 
we met in, um, we sailed, my husband and I sailed up there and we decided to live a year in Masset. So mm -hmm. while we were there, he was carving the pole for YVR at that time. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the big, there's actually three poles that are there right in the uh, welcoming area in Canada at wow. the, at the, at the um, airport. So we went to look at that and then we met um, and I met his partner and she and I became friends. Um, and um, the line grew out of that, that out of that part. It's mostly friendship based. It wasn't business based. It was um, like liking more of the in indigenous culture where you're friends, you spend time together, you eat together, you go fishing. And then out of that blossomed a, a, a um, uh, a trust and interest. So, right. Yeah. That's great. That's super awesome. Um, how did you find, or I guess not how did you find, but what was your experience with um, kind of taking someone else's art and kind of collaborating on it with them? And then I guess trying to make your art be uh, culturally informed as well, like while you're building this relationship with someone. Yeah, that's a good, really great question. Reg was very generous in that he he really gave me carte blanche to do whatever I wanted to do. So there was, I think that the relationship was, he, he was not, nor never has been once one to um, have any dictation on how he wanted things being used. So I was given a lot of freedom. Um, I personally, because of having lived there and what I just gathered, didn't really ever want to break the images up too much. So hmm. if I'm going to, and because the stories are very ethereal and holistic and the clothing is a little bit, I wanted to make sure that the entire image of whatever it was of his work was on the piece. And that's how it started. So there it was, so it looked like as with the story or any of these, um, um, you know, animal crests that they would be um, fully on the garment and they would in a way dance around it so that it was still in that sort of st um, story and um, ancestral uh, quality. Um, so it was probably more, it, it, it was, I, I ended up being more of a beacon of of uh, reconciliation for other white people than anyone else. Uh, we would people would come up and say, "Well, why are you doing this?" That would happen for sure. So that was important to talk about that we had a, 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 an agreement and that it was an artist collaboration. Um, there was, and then there were people that felt, that felt they couldn't wear the clothing because. Um, because they were hyper aware of the fact that we don't want to have any appropriation. So yeah. then, and I could speak to Reg about that. So it wasn't wearing and celebrating the art itself is not appropriation. That's just celebrating the art. You can buy it and wear it on your, and have it on your wall, or you could wear it on your, on your back or yeah. um, that it's not, um, it's not ceremony wear. Right. One of, one of the things that Reg wanted was that he really wanted people from his community to be able to wear something to potlatches that was much lighter because um, ceremonial wear is, is very heavy. It's wool, the wool blankets. Mm -hmm. So part of his goal was to be able to provide something that was lighter um, 
with more color, more variety, so that um, to celebrate themselves. And in the end, that's probably my greatest uh, joy in creating that line was the was the joy it gave um, indigenous women right. for being able to celebrate their heritage. Yeah, that's beautiful, and I think that's a very um, almost like a modern take on kind of forging that relationship between art and culture and commercialization. Uh, how did you find the reaction commercially to your business kind of taking a different route and doing something using Indigenous art? Did you find that your customers had different reactions to it than you were expecting or was everything great? Do you have anything to say about that kind of area? I mean, it was interesting when I would go to Toronto that people thought that it was um, Inuit art. So there mm -hmm. was really um, a disconnect of, or a disconnect, probably not. There was an educational aspect of, whereas in BC, uh, most people can see see West Coast art for um, Indigenous art um, yeah. or Haida art. The form lines are a, a certain. But I, again, I, I think that with my... Uh, well, originally it was, I would mostly be have um, um, settlers at buying from me, right? Not Indigenous women. Now there's lots of Indigenous women that will buy from me as well. Um, but mostly, like I say, it, it was an informing kind of, um, it was more about the information. I didn't really find it that um, difficult. And I did, I was able to, I, I was able to do like at, um, uh, Vancouver Indigenous Fashion Week for three times, I think. Now I don't do it anymore as because I'm because it isn't appropriate for me to. But at the beginning, it was because there wasn't a lot out there, right? But now there's way more designers. It's not my story anymore. Yeah. But I was really happy to be a part of that. So it's been quite interesting to sort of try and navigate that too. It's like, how far do we take this as far as? Um, you know, a settler and an indigenous artist doing something together. And where do where do I step back and say, yeah, you know what? Somebody else can step in here with you, Reg, if, they, yeah. if, you, if that's what you want. I don't, but again, I think our relationship is one that's much more culturally based in, um, in, uh, in at least Reg, Reggie's um, manifestation of his culture, which is, we met each other, we liked each other, we made something happen. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a beautiful connection that you guys have. And it's amazing that you could create something that um, kind of reached so many people. And especially like maybe at the time a niche that wasn't being addressed properly. Um, how have you seen the industry change in your 16 years as a textile artist? Um, and if you have any insights about, I guess, um, more indigenous led artists coming um i don't want to say coming into light but maybe facing a little bit less uh, institutional issues with coming into um kind of prevalence there do you have anything to say about yeah the oh, about, sorry about about it, it, indigenous designers is that what you were talking asking if, about if you, if you have no. um, yeah. I, mean, I mean jolie mitten somebody that you you know, you probably want to talk to because she ended up being, um, well, first of all, she was um, 
the model for all of my indigenous work, right? She runs Vancouver Indigenous Fashion Week and she supplied all the models and all the models were, she had mentored because they had aged out of the system. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole, you know, a world of understanding about. Right. And I remember going into fashion. The first one was Echo Fashion Week with her and thinking, I don't know, is this really what these young women need? Like to go to all of a sudden enter into like catwalk walk, walking and but uh, um, I was completely convinced afterwards because um because these women um these young women weren't coming to be models to for a for a different kind of be models like in New York or be known on Vogue they were coming to find out what their expression was and who were they as women and what do they feel about their work the art um you know wearing their own art and yeah it was amazing to to witness um a blossoming of um people who have felt um subjugated essentially so i do think there's a massive movement now was as the as things are changed, so everything close um, changes very slowly, but I think that there is a big uh, surge of um, Indigenous designers now, um, more Indigenous models. Jolene has started a um, a Indigenous uh, fashion model. Um, you're right. So it's just the, yeah. pretty exciting. Reg, on the other hand. It claims to be rather colorblind as far as he's concerned. I mean, he's older, so he's my age. And he thinks that um, you just need to have good, healthy relationships and everything will work out fine. You don't have to. um, You don't have to base um, the reason for having a connection with someone because of their background or their history. Um, But that's not where we're at right now. Yeah. So, yeah. But yeah. there, I think there's there's a lot of just in the green movement, mm-hmm. just in the movement of um, that. There's a lot of greenwashing, and it's all gone a little bit sideways. So it's hard to to know who's on first with any of this. And I did notice that. I mean, one of the reasons for me leaving is I felt that. Well, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I'm not sure if it's like just because I'm getting older or whatever, but. It seemed it was easier before a lot of social media for me because it was just basically who you met, who you spoke to and where you showed up. Now it's mostly marketing and advertising. I find it and I find that very distressing for me because um, I don't I'm not really interested in that world too much. Yeah. um, And I went I took a course so I would know more, but I noticed that. Most people were developing stories because they knew they needed a story in order to have a good media. Um, right. uh, and I went, "What? So you you're gonna you make up your story to make sure that you've got a story because that's what's going to sell." And you're going, "Well, just a minute." I mean, ah. So anyway, that kind of stuff just drove me that bonkers. Just the pandering, so, kind of like shameless. Yeah, so now nothing's really, well, I guess, and that's sort of what we're dealing with social media is nothing's really real anymore. It's yeah. not really based on what of a passion that you might have and you create and you and you hear that passion and you decide to 
um, work on that passion. Yeah. You, you create a you create a, a pseudo passion based on what you think will sell. Right. Right. And so, um, yeah. Anyway. So that's yeah. it. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Like, I feel like there's something really important about that quality of like being genuine as like a creator and um i think a lot of good art is very authentic and i do think that in this kind of day and age with social media and with just kind of like shamelessly plugging and trying to make a profit off of everything like it is pretty easy to get lost in that kind of consumer culture and just want like you're like i think that what i make is great i want everyone to think that what i make is great I will appeal to every single person that I can and I will, you know, sell my product just in every possible way I can tangibly imagine. And yeah, I think there's that definitely goes back to that like capitalist system and culture of overconsumption that we were talking about earlier. Um, but I wanted to kind of touch on a point that you brought up a bit earlier um, and just kind of ask you a bit more about how you see um, kind of the eco-conscious movement and kind of indigenous um, activism, their uh, intersection, as well as how that intersection is played into fashion and the fashion industry and your work as an artist, if you have any ideas about that. Well, I'm not very, I'm not very conscious right now, honestly, about what indigenous fashion and is doing with in an eco- in an eco-conscious way. I assume, is that was that part of the question? Sorry. Well, I'm just um, kind of touching on how you are, like at least initially starting out, your, your main focus was kind of that ethical and like eco-conscious art practice. And throughout the course of your career um, and kind of near nearing the, I don't want to say the end of it, but nearing the end of your uh, commercial career, um, how you've transitioned from just purely kind of focusing on being eco-conscious to also now you're working with indigenous creators and you're producing kind of indigenous art related pieces as well. Um, and I think that that is a connection that I see more often than not between kind of the like green communities and people who are trying to, um, I, I don't want to say like indigenous allies, but um, uh-huh. Yeah, I do see like a, a clear connection with that. Oh, okay. I think that those well, systems are interrelated. So I guess, you know, we, I never really thought about it that way, but that's a really um, an interesting. I mean, if, so I I remained rather uh, true, I think without, throughout Jalyu Drive and with Yash Ochai to staying um environmentally friendly right I still I only used recycled materials I only used um, uh, a local sewers right um, so and I made most of the stuff myself afterwards that in between part so I think on that level it became, and I didn't want to yes and I did want to make more uh, pret-a-porter I really I did want things that were ready to to wear yeah so um, if, if, if we look at that just as a more, as a where that were my limited understanding of our indigenous peoples and culture and where there would be an overlap between the two would be environment, right? Would be being 
being kinder to the earth, being conscientious about where what you're doing to it, where you're, what kind of dyes you're using and what waste you have and what's going into. So I think there always was an overlap. So maybe in that sense, and also my, uh, my attachment to my ancestors, my own ancestors, um, to um, my my honoring of them in my storytelling in okay. my is also something that um, indigenous people and Haida speak to a lot. They yeah. they have a lot of regard for their elders, and uh, there's a lot of um, gratitude towards um, their history. So I think. Maybe it's by not not by accident that my husband and I would sail up to Haida Gwaii and live there for a year. Yeah. In, in the sense that we were in a boat, we wanted to live a simpler life. We wanted to be experience the, the nature of that place and the wonder in a, in a more bare bones kind of way. So maybe bare bones and echo consciousness goes together, right? right? Yeah, for sure. So maybe that the reasons that this all happened and that relationship is most is more important than anything else so and that's been part of my um mm -hmm. certainly part of the thesis of my work has been i'm i go i go to all my shows and i stay there and i meet the people because the final the final incarnation of the piece is on the person who wears it mm -hmm. it's not really a living piece until it's worn and how do you see kind of the difference between like wearable art and just conventional everyday clothes? Where do you draw the distinction between that? I guess for me, I mean, beside what people think of art, right? It, but I would say that for me, art is a, um, is a kind of a living thing. So that's why all of us, in essence, are a piece of art. Right. What I think makes clothing, art, wearable art clothing different is that no two pieces are exactly the same. And so I've been able to do Pret-a-Porter, but that's not because I, it's because each painting is a different painting. Right. So there's no way, even though you might have 15 that look somewhat similar because I put the same image um, on the front or the back, it's not the same painting. Right. So it actually is its own living piece. Mm. That's beautiful. So that's what I would say that that makes a, that makes a difference. There's there's no two exactly the same. Like just like there's no two of us. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a beautiful kind of conclusion that you're drawing from your artistic um, practice there. Uh, and I do have to say that we are running a bit short on time, so okay. this is going to be kind of my last question, or leave it open also for you to bring up any points that you wanted to speak about today. Um, but I guess just thinking about how we are doing this interview because you're taking, uh, in your own words, your kind of final bow from this career that you've had. And I guess if you have any reflections about the career that you have had or your next steps in life or any big revelations that your work has brought you, I'd be totally willing and absolutely obsessed with hearing anything you have to say about that. Um, yeah, I think. I'm, I'm really happy to make a dis. So again, if we're circling back to what you were talking about, about a, a limit, or we were talking about with limitations of being an artist mm -hmm. and having made a choice of, of, of a limitation being in the, um, using what you have, right? And not making more. So I would have um, 
when I was having pieces sewn, I would have to have, or it was cheapest for me to have a hundred pieces sewn, but some okay. of them, I would be only 50 pieces sewn at a time. That would be more expensive. But that meant that I had a lot of blanks hanging in my studio. So with COVID, um, I had a, uh, I had a diagnosis that, that made me very, health diagnosis that made me uh, um, more conscious of um, the limitations of time at being, you know, 60, I think six at that time. Um, and I noticed that the whole world started to question what they do because now what we do was not de rigueur but all of a sudden. So I think that the, there was a whole reflection that kind of happened there. It started with that and I lost my sewers and I didn't do shows for a couple of years because of because all of my shows have been live. So that was a point of reflection for me. And I think that I realized that I only had a, I was going to look at it that way. I only have a certain number of years left, right, in my life. And I only have a certain number of, of blank pieces here hanging in my studio. Yeah. I don't have any more sewers, right, yeah. at this time. Okay, so I've got this limited amount of time, and I'm thinking, do I want to go out and start with that same energy I did earlier, find my sewers, get some sewers up, get them yeah. making the product the way that I want and keep going? Or yeah. do I say, no, I'm going to just use what I have, mm -hmm. not more. Mm -hmm. So that was the decision that came to the end was like, I will use, I will wait till everything that I have here is gone. Right. And that will be it. So yeah. it was a great exercise in limitations and not so I don't have any more and when I go to the sale this week it'll people say well can I have one of those and they go no there are no more and yeah. this is something that I find has been difficult in my life but difficult in many people's lives which is when you say oh I want more no you know yeah. what there aren't any more and, and I'm not even gonna I'm not gonna even make more or just yeah. because you want more or there's no more ice cream right yeah. and how do we sit with yeah, no, not in a mean way. So anyway, that's where I'm at with that. So I'm quite thankful to have had that limitation, which has allowed me to find a way of honoring the, pro the process and honoring the goodbye. Mm -hmm. And realizing that in some ways, in, in, in not in an unhappy way, it is a practice of letting go and moving on for a woman who's 68, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I've got years I hope ahead of me but when there is that awareness is that wanting more is not helping us in the world and it yeah. certainly doesn't help you in what you do with your life yeah and I feel like that is kind of the practice of like living what you preach like you are an eco-conscious artist and you're kind of taking that into your own life as well right like you're you're not you're not separating the art from the artist, ultimately, I guess, is what I would say about that. No, and I don't know what, I don't know an artist who really can do that. I yeah. Mean, I, I yeah. Because it's hard to do that if you're not living into it. Yeah. But anyway. That's back to the genuine, like, quality of being genuine with your art, too, as well. as like, if you're going to try to separate the art from the artist, maybe that quality of being genuine wasn't, wasn't there to begin with. No. Maybe not. I, mean, yeah. I know from now I'm a little the only thing I'm nervous about is that I have so I have interest I have followers you create a certain I mean I didn't keep I didn't keep an email list I mean I didn't even keep an email list right so yeah. I don't have any but 
I don't won't have shows to come to anymore. So if I create another type of art, it won't be yeah. Um, it, it won't be with um already interested uh, parties, and I don't I don't know what that will be like. But I, then I think it doesn't really matter. You know, you just do your art and you just leave it on the. There was a guy, this older guy. He just made paintings and he just left them on his front lawn. Like yeah. what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> Um, that's pretty much our time. Sorry to cut you off there. Oh, no, that's fine. But it has been a wonderful discussion, and I am so excited to meet you also at the craft fair coming up soon. So um, I'm looking forward to, yeah, our in-person meeting there. And thank you so much, so, so much for taking the time out of your day to speak to me today. It was really nice to meet you, Serena. Yeah, nice to meet you, too. All right. Um, On November 14th, MRG Live presents St. Paul and the Broken Bones with special guest Maggie Rose, live at the historic Vogue Theatre. Don't miss your chance to catch this eight-piece soul band playing music from their latest release, Angels and Science Fiction. The show is all ages, and tickets are on sale now. Head to admitone.com and search for St. Paul and the Broken Bones to get yours. MRG presents Garrett T. Willie at the Wise Hall, performing his debut album, Same Pain. This 23-year-old from Kingcome Inlet offers the world something it has genuinely been missing for a while, a contemporary take on hardscrabble blues and the purest, rawest rock and roll. Don't miss Garrett T. Willie's show at the Wise Hall on December 2nd, and be sure to catch his in-studio performance and interview on Noise Complaint by CITR 101.9, also on December 2nd. album by a local artist where you can dance around to and cry to at the same time? Well, look no further. Once More with Feeling by Masank from Fanta Records is out now on all streaming platforms and can be purchased on Bandcamp. This is an album that has all the versatility you're looking for, from songs like Sober Most Nights to Note to Self, which is playing right now. If you or someone you know has experienced sexual assault, you are not alone. Stand Informed Legal Advice Services is a new program offered by Community Legal Assistance Society that provides free legal advice to anyone who lives in BC and has experienced sexual assault in this province. Stand Informed offers up to three hours of free, confidential legal advice, regardless of age, gender, income, whether the assault has been reported to the police, or if you are uncertain that what you experienced is sexual assault. To access Stand Informed services, call 604-673-3143 or email standinformed at clasbc.net. Hello, welcome back. 
We are broadcasting to you live on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the Arts Report. I have been your host, Serena. Um, and we had a wonderful interview with Wendy Van Riesen, the owner of Dahlia Drive and an amazing textile artist. She is wrapping up her 16-year career this week at the Circle Craft Fair, so be sure to go check that out. Um, and as well this week, we have uh, CITR's Battle of the Bands, annual Battle of the Bands, Shindig. It's amazing. We have 16 bands um, every Tuesday for the next four weeks. We had the first insta- installment um, of Shindig was last night. So every Tuesday at Redgate, doors are at 8, music at 8.30. Come support some local bands. Come hang out with all of your cool, awesome radio station friends. Come talk to me. Let me interview you. Um, and all that good stuff. So thank you so much for listening today, and we will see you next week for a very, very special Shindig special episode. We will be broadcasting some of the um, interview footage, or sorry, not footage, interview um, audio that we have with these bands, and yeah, just getting you ready and getting you in the mood for the next event. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful evening. Pretty quiet out here, it's abundantly